Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Anne Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Brachot Samach Aleph 61. Again, a huge daf, many, many things to discuss. Anne and I had a lot of trouble figuring out what we wanted to talk about today. Um, I'm well aware that when we get into Shabbos, this will not be the case. There will probably be far less on each daf in the sense of just the quantity of interesting stories, uh, interpretation of psukim, etc. So I'm just going to start with two quick points that I wanted to make. One is that our friend Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, who we mentioned before, uh, is mentioned again on this page. Um, And so just to point that out, remember, we discussed him before um, as one of the Tanaim who's really associated with sort of Agadita and doing miracles. So we see him again on this page. Uh, The other thing I want here, he's a paradigm of piety. Right. And he's the paradigm of piety, which is what's important to know about him. And I think is consistent to his personality throughout um, Gemara. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out here, which I don't have enough time to delve into, but this whole Gemara in the beginning of Ahmed Aleph uh, discussing Adam and Chava and whether Chava was initially created um, as sort of part of Adam and it was like a two-faced human being with one side being man and one side being woman, or whether Chava was created as part of the rib, um, or literally the word that's actually being used there is probably tail. Um, to me personally, you know, as a feminist, just had a lot of implications about, you know, what is the view of women and their relationship to man? And that obviously, you know, saying that man and woman were created on one body with two faces is a much more, um, uh, I don't know if egalitarian is the right word, but sort of equal presentation of their creation as opposed to the idea that's developed that maybe Chava came from the tail or the rib of Adam. So I think there's a lot to think about there, um, would be a sheer on its own. So, but I just wanted to point that out as I think something to pay attention to on the deaf. And Anne, I'll let you know talk about what you wanted to discuss okay well i'm going to talk on about that you. light on that light note <laughs> it, it's going to get worse right because well i guess full disclosure is that i would not call myself a feminism a feminist but on the other hand this next bit is still kind of a little disturbing to modern sensibilities um in terms of the relationship between men and women but i but it, and it's specific i would say that where it's pre- specifically presented the dynamic there in the context of the yetzahara right, the evil inclination as it's often translated, um, let's call it more a matter of temptation. And I want to go through a bit of this text, just to, so bear with me as we go through, there's a lot more to unpack than we're going to have time to unpack today, but I want it out there for food for thought and further discussion. If a man, meaning like a clerk, was counting out money to the, to the, from his, he's going to pay the money from his hand to the woman's hand. And he specifically does so. And the Gemara here is very clear. I mean, very explicit. In order to look at her, except for that, if you'll recall back when we were talking um, much earlier in the Masachet around Kaf Aleph, has this connotation of uh, looking with the intent to benefit sexually, that there's some kind of um, uh, promiscuity, arousal, something that that's part of the intent. So the Gemara here says, Torah, meaning if even if he were as from as can be, he's in trouble. He's 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 um 
he's basically put himself into Gehinom. This is, you know, the Gemara's term for hell for our purposes. And then there's a proof text that set, that shows how yad liad, hand to hand, is exactly a problem, and you can't get rid of it. Now, there's so much to talk about just in that. Like, how bad could it be? Are we talking? And I want to just reiterate that as much as there was to talk about, this is not the case of regular. Um, a regular transaction in a store, right? Where, in fact, a person might indeed hand another person change. Uh, now, listen, if you're in a from store, you might end up like a person, put, a man puts the change sometimes down on the counter and the woman can pick it up, vice versa. Um, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is specifically with this intent for some kind of promiscuity on the on his part. I'm Rav Nachman. And now Rav Nachman kind of, it, seems, it feels like a complete um, non sequitur Rav Nachman starts talking about Manoach. Manoach, um, you'll remember from Shoftim, Manoach is, his wife is this really clearly holy woman who continually sees an angel and who comes to speak to her and um, promise her that Shimshon is going to be born, Samson. And Manoach is a little bit clueless in the text of the Navi. It's worth reading there. Um, the book of Shoftim, Judges, chapter 13. Am Rav Nachman, Manoach, Am Ha'arataya. So, Rav Nachman is saying what anybody who's read the Navi will know themselves. Manoch is an Amha'aretz, Dichti Ve'elach Manoch Achrei Ishto. Now, the issue here that's really being discussed is that Manoch walked after his wife. Now, the previous Gemara, a little bit further above this section here, says that nobody's allowed to walk behind a woman, even behind their wife, that it might end up leading to them, leading them into a situation of temptation. And look at what, what what Manoach did, he walked behind his wife. He clearly did not know that he was not allowed to do this. But there's a big argument on this. One second, we've got other people in Navi who also walked behind their wives. Elkanah also walked after his wife. Elisha walked after a woman. So does that mean that literally they're walking after her, physically behind her? El They're following her lead. They're following her words. Her her advice. So we can say that Manoach also, you don't even have to say he was an, an Amaharet. He wasn't really following her physically. You don't have to worry about any kind of licentiousness going on. Rather, he's clearly, right, the Gemara posits that he's he has the possibility that he was following her advice. And indeed, in the text, he does follow her advice. Amarav Ashi, of Nachman, Manoch, So why are we saying that he's an Amaharat? Afilu Nami Lokra, right? That he, the claim is that he, Manoach, was such an ignoramus, he did not even learn basic stories. Meaning, there's a, a Again, an example, you don't have to have, you, the, the idea is that even if you just learn the story of Rivka in Chumash, then you would know that the woman follows the man, right? Because they, Rivka and everybody, follows this is at the well, and they, she follows, you know, it, it turns out to be Yaakov, right? Um, and she doesn't go before him. You can, it's preferable to walk behind a lion. There's our lion, right? They, again, these, the themes and points that we've seen throughout Masach Brachot, many, many of them are reappearing in this last parak. 
You can follow a lion, but not a woman. Better to follow a woman than to follow after idolatry. And you can follow idolatry. You can walk behind idolatry, so to speak, but not behind a shul. We talk about the themes and the issues coming up. At the time that the congregation is davening, do not walk behind it, so to speak, lest somebody think that you are separating yourself from the com- community as if you do not want to join them in prayer. So this goes on and on. I mean, the Gemara carries this along quite far, but what I find to be valuable is, again, let's jump. If you're following along on the daf, we're jumping a bit, just a, a few lines. Amarav, Yetzer hara domel Yoshev ben Halev. The Yetzirah is like a fly, and it sits between the two entrances of the heart. Dead flies, this is a Pusik from Kohelet, dead flies make the ointment of perfume putrid. Right? The idea that the moment you've, you've got this, like it's a festering issue, this idea of giving in to the Yetzirah. So that's what I think is really going on here, that there's a discussion here about men and women and the dynamic between the two and what is going on when you say the man should not follow after a woman. It's not, it's not talking about regular uh, social interaction, which may clearly have been quite a different dynamic then than it is now. But the issue is, if we're talking about giving into your Yetzirah, uh, part of what happens is in a co-ed society, and I, I know we have many, many listeners, and I'm sure people live in varying degrees of more co-ed or less co-ed, depending on your job, depending on your social standing. I don't mean social standing. I mean social interaction, depending on your shul, depending on your community. Basically, the bottom line is that whatever you, whatever is the norm for you, then doing something that is more, um, what's the right word here? Um, you know, that's, that's more, that's, that's more interaction than you would expect within your social norms puts all parties at risk of there being a Yetzirah factor. Um, I'm saying this a little bit ambiguously because again, as I said, really like to sit down and really unpack this more closely, but I do think that no matter how egalitarian our society has become, and I think in many society, many of our societies, it is quite uh, comfortable for men and women to interact in a indeed comfortable way. There's still this awareness, I think, that the Gemara is trying to present that uh, you still have to be careful. Does that literally mean in terms of walking behind? I don't know. People need to be aware of themselves, I would say. Um, I certainly don't want to um, suggest that this is presented as halacha. It is not presented as halacha. It is presented as the way to be, right? Um, the idea that somebody can end up in Gehinom, this is not a halachic punishment, right? Halachic punishment would be lashes or bring a carbon chatat or you know and so on um so the idea here is again we're in agarata land we are in the realm of advice and we are in the the whole underlying discussion i think is about male female interaction and the role that the yetzer plays here i agree with you i don't think the gemara I, my takeaway from this gemara is not to say to limit male female interaction the way that was what was appropriate in sis- or customary in society at the time of the Talmud. But I think it's more the general takeaway, which is to think about what are interactions like with each other and are there things to learn from that. Um, and that's always what's a little hard with some of these agaditas is they sometimes describe a societal norm or custom 
that's just not how we do things today, but that doesn't mean that they're not relevant or that we still can't learn something from it. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit farther ahead and go to a Gemara that starts to talk about Shema again. So it's interesting to me that we get back to Shema at the end of Brachot, because that's sort of where we started Brachot. Um, and the Gemara here on, Daf, Amud, on Amud Bat, sorry, starts to quote the part of the Mishnah, So if you recall that one long Mishnah, right, the Mishnah that began the beginning of this parak. Um, says, right, a person has to bless on the bad as much as they would on the good. And the pasuk they used to quote comes from Shema. So with your heart, right, meaning with the two parts of your heart, with your Yetzer Tov and your Yetzer Ra, so again, this fits into the discussion that we're having. This is still the Mishnah that's on Daf, um, that's on Nundal, but this fits into the discussion here on this page. And then saying that with your soul, meaning even if God takes your soul. So what follows then is a very, very famous story about Rabbi Akiva, which I think is worth reading and delving a little bit deeper into. So the Gemara begins by quoting um, and it quotes a famous price between um, Rabbi Eliezer um, and his explanation of these psukim and ends with Rabbi Akiva, who reiterates the same opinion or the same position that we saw in our Mishnah, which says, Rabbi Akiva, Mer, Bechol Nafshecha, Afilo Notel, at Nafshecha, right? That with your soul, even if, you're, even if God takes your soul. Then the Gemara goes on and tells this story that during the Gezeira Machut meaning during the time of the Romans, or it was like during the time of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, right? The Romans decided that no Jew could engage in the study of Torah. And somebody named Papus Ben Yehuda finds Rabbi Akiva, uh, you know, basically not only learning Torah, but he's convening people in public. He has, uh, you know, he has, uh, he has a classroom of people that he's teaching Torah to. And he basically says to him, like, Rabbi Akiva, aren't you scared that you're going to get in trouble? And Rabbi Akiva follows by telling him this, Mashal, right, about the fox who's walking on the riverbank and he sees fish and he tries to tell, you know, fish who are in the river and he t- the fox says to the fish, what are you running from? And, you know, the, the fish say we're running from the nets and the fox says, well, why don't you come up on dry land and we can be together, you know, the way that our ancestors were. Obviously, this may have been a trap, right, that the fox was trying to set for the fish. Um, and so the fish said, you know, what do you, you know, you think you're very smart fox. But if we're scared of being in the water, right, which is where we're supposed to be living, how much more so we would be scared of being out of the water that we would die. And so the moral that Rabbi Akiva is teaching here is that we too as Jews who are supposed to in our natural habitat always be studying Torah. So if we're being told not to study Torah, right, we should be even more scared from that. And the Gemara then tell, uh, you know, says the following, Amru. So a few days after this encounter that he had with Papus Ben Yehuda, what happens? Rabbi Akiva is basically captured by the Roman government and he's thrown into jail. Um, and Papus Ben Yehuda, the Tavsu Lepapsu Ben Yehuda, the Chavshu Etzlo. And Papus Ben Yehuda, he's also thrown into jail. Amar lo, Papus, mi hevi chalakan. Amar lo, ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, 
Shanit Pasta Al Dibre Tarah, Oilo Lapapa Shanit Pas Al Dibre Batelein. Right? And so Rabbi Akiva says to Papas, who brought you here? In other words, he's asking him, why would you have gotten arrested? You chose not to teach or study Torah. And so Papas says to Rabbi Akiva, you know, Ashrei, happy are you? Because you were still engaged in the study of Torah. You still stay true to what our mission is supposed to be. And then sort of the Gemara makes the comment of saying, right? Or, it, or it's not clear if it's the Gemara saying this or if it's Papas saying this about himself. And woe is to Papas who he basically gets arrested for doing, right, for doing something silly. Now we get into the story about Rabbi Akiva, where he's actually martyred. And remember that Rabbi Akiva is considered to be one of the 10 martyrs that we've mentioned before, the 10 of the Asar Haruli Malkus. So when Rabbi Akiva was taken out to be killed, it was the time of Kriyachma. And what did they do to torture him? They started combing his flesh with iron combs. And in that moment, he was basically reciting Shema, right? Because it was time for him to recite Shema. And he was being makabel on himself. He was taking upon himself the yoke of Torah. Now, I know many people are familiar with this story. And I think this little detail is sometimes left out of it. I think most people think it's that Rabbi Akiva said Shema at that moment to be Mechabal Omachachamayim because he was being tortured. But they make it very clear that it's actually, it was the time for him to say Shema. And I think what's being communicated here is just like Rabbi Akiva continued to do the mitzvah of Limud HaTorah, here too, even though Rabbi Akiva knows it's his moment of death, he has a mitzvah to fulfill, the mitzvah of Kriyachma, which is the mitzvah of being Mechabal Omachachamayim, and he's going to do that in this moment. Amrilo Tamidav. So now a theological discussion basically follows here. His students say to him, Rabbeinu Adkan, our teacher, how much, right? They're basically saying, how much can you keep keeping the mitzvah, right? Like you're even being tortured now and you're still going to keep doing this? Amar Lahem, he says to them, My whole life, right? I was worried. I was troubled by this pasuk, right? That even if God takes your soul, Amarti, I said, When will it come that I will be able to fulfill this? Again, this is within the spirit of that Rabbi Akiva's whole goal is to fulfill as many mitzvot as possible. And here he had this interpretation of this particular pasuk, and it was the fulfillment of a particular mitzvah that you, the proving of loving God is, uh, with all your soul is that even if God takes your soul and his whole life he's worried, he's not going to be able to actually fulfill this mitzvah. And now that it's come to me, I shouldn't fulfill it. So he gets to the word achad when he says Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Achad, and he lengthens the word achad. And his soul departs as he says the word achad. And a bat kol comes out, and we'll spend another episode at some point talking about what the backhole is, but the backhole basically functions as a heavenly voice that comes out and generally tells us something in the narration that we would not have known from regular human observance. It's a supernatural observation. And the backhole says, happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, that your soul came out in Echad, right? And again, this is parallel to what, what, what Papas Ben Yehuda says, right? Also, Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva. Amru So, we continue with the theological discussion. The first that we see is 
the, the students coming and saying to Rabbi Akiva, how can you keep going? And Rabbi Akiva says, no, I'm happy to because this is the fulfillment of a mitzvah that I always was worried I would never be able to do. Now we see that there's a theological argument in Shemaim itself, right? So the angels come to God and say the following, right? This is Torah and this is its reward. And they quote the following, Pasuk, Mimitim Yadecha Hashem, Mimitim, so which says from death by your hand, from death in this world, which is from Tehillim, right? So basically saying that maybe that's what this Pasuk is saying, is that God basically causes death in this world, that if you're close to God, your fate is to die. Amar Lahem, Hashem says basically back to the angels, right? He says that the end of this verse says what? Whose portion is life. So basically trying to say what? No, it's not true that Zotorah v'Zoscharah, that the reward of Torah is death. It's actually that the reward of Torah is actually its life. So it's fascinating. Another bakhol has to come out. A bakhol coming out in Shamayim, which is very interesting. And says, what, Rabbi Akiva, you are destined to be in the world to come. So very, very interesting story here. Um, this is sort of the, uh, you know, uh, story that I think is the classical text about Rabbi Akiva and the type of faith that Rabbi Akiva had. Um, and I think we, you know, again, parse out a couple of things, which I already mentioned. I think the fact that this happens at the time of Kriyachma is, again, just an example of Rabbi Akiva's devotion to fulfilling mitzvot um, and that he continued to fulfill the mitzvot even while being tortured and that he got to fulfill the additional sort of, I don't know that it's necessarily a commandment, but his understanding of what b'chol nafshacha means. But, but, but I think it's also interesting to see that the Gemara understands what's theologically problematic with this story and is therefore willing to sort of engage in conversation, right, setting up these scenarios between Rabbi Akiva and the Talmidim. What did this look like for the Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva? This was hard to witness. And even to acknowledge that even within Shamayim, in the parallel world to us, this was also hard for the angels to see, that this somehow did not make sense to their understanding of how the world should function. Um, so um, this story does appear, I believe, in other places as well. Um, this is one version of the story. Um, and um, I just think it's, you know, it brings up a lot of questions of faith. Um, and really is sort of saying at the end that, you know, leading a light of, life of mitzvot is not a guarantee of everything working out well for you. And then, in fact, you know, I think what we're really supposed to be learning from Rabbi Akiva more is just this desire and this drive to want to fulfill mitzvot and that there is a happiness that can happen with that. And getting back to the discussion we've been having on many of the previous pages, that much of life is about our framing. This is a framing, right? Rabbi Akiva is choosing to say that even in my moment of death, even in my moment of torture, I still have the ability to fill mitzvot and to be happy about it. I just want to add, I mean, I, I think you've done a beautiful uh, presentation here of the story I, and, and the history of it as well. Um, I just want to add that this is really fundamentally the source of what happened, where people say Shema, right, on their deathbed, or when people say Shema in a time of dire need, uh, the idea that we would have this utterance, well, it comes from the passage right before the story of Rabbi Kiva, it says, Bechol 
Bechol Nafshecha. And this is where the the um, confusion creeps in, I think, Yardina, where I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is, that he's saying Shema because it is the time to say Shema and that his faith is that it is time to say Shema, so I better say it, right? And that is a very, very powerful uh, testimony to faith as opposed to, oh, I'm about to die, so I better say Shema. But what happens is in the subsequent generations, that comes to be the conclusion. And I think that that's an interesting take and perhaps not really the original intent on what it means, Bechol um, Nafshecha. It's, it's painful. I mean, literally, right? This is one of the most painful stories of, of the Asar Haruge Malchut, in part because we know Rabbi Akiva, right? We know his story about how he came to learn Torah. We know his story with his, how he marries his wife. And we see his name, you know, throughout the entirety of Shas because his voice in, in Halakha is literally just that big. Uh, so his death is painful for all of us, or it should be, I think. Um, right. In terms well, the of other suffering piece is about Rabbi Akiva, right. The other piece about Rabbi Akiva, which I didn't mention is, but we'll see this as we go through Gemara, is Rabbi Akiva is the eternal optimist. And this is an expression of that, that even within the darkest moment, he's able to say, but I get the joy of keeping me spoke. And that's his frame. And again, I just think this story really carries through so many of the themes that we've been seeing in these last few pages. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's an element of Viktor Frankl on these pages, right? It's, it's your choice. And that was Rabbi Akiva's choice in that moment, was to say, you know, I still, I still get to do mitzvot, and there's joy that that brings me to do. That's our DOF discussion for the day. Uh, rank us and review us where you find your podcast. You can join our WhatsApp group. Uh, we thank Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website and join our conversation exactly on this discussion on our Facebook page. Please join our CUM on Sunday, May 8th, uh, 10 a.m. March 8th. What did I say? May, May 8th. 8th. No, no, no. March 8th. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. March 8th. Um, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard, 5 p.m. Israel time. Until tomorrow, go and learn.